Uh, we'll begin with chapter, verse 1 and chapter 1. This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And the Lord replied, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth, and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. And Habakkuk replied, Are you not everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself at the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. For behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is God's word. Thanks, Joe. That was a lot to read. Uh, so let me, let me just break it down very simply for us to, to follow along. Uh, you see one thing with your own eyes. You hear something else from God. So you are confronted with a choice. Which are you to believe? Right? Whose truth do you believe above all? What you see or what you hear? So at the back of your bulletin, if it's helpful for you, look at the back of your bulletin. You're going to see an outline there for this morning that can help you follow along. Let me repeat it for us. You see one thing with your own eyes. You hear something else from God. Then there's what you believe above all. That's the narrative of Habakkuk. What we believe above all will determine our capacity for joy in the midst of adversity. God intervenes in the lives of his people with the possibility of joy 
when the world around them seems grossly unjust. We're going to see this morning in Habakkuk this Q&A that he has with God. But it'll take a minute to work through the dialogue. So let's get to work on it. So first, let's talk about what you see with your own eyes. What do you see with your own eyes? Nobody ever says, I'll believe it when I hear it, or I believe it when I smell it, or I'll believe it when I taste it. Unless it's after the taste of Cayman, that doesn't happen. And tasting things randomly can be very inappropriate, depending on the social setting. We do say, we do say, I'll believe it when I see it. Seeing is believing. Relevant side note, scientists have actually found recently that there are more neurological impulses moving from one's brain to one's eye when he or she focuses on something. Then impulses going from the eye back to the brain. In other words, indicating that a large part of what we see is what we want to see. A large part of what we think is what we already want to think. And it goes to our eyes and helps us see, which is kind of an interesting thing. We don't always see things clearly. We see what we want to see, what our brain tells us to see. Interesting. Nevertheless, we interpret life primarily through our eyes. Most of us are visual learners. We like images, right? We like PowerPoints to go along with the sermon. We like Instagram, or we like pictures to go along with the cool Facebook quote because we learn visually. And Habakkuk is no different. Listen to how he tries to prove his case to God. The evidence that he presents... And what he says is almost entirely visual. Look at verse 2. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Or verse 13, towards God. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil, you cannot look at wrong. Why do you look at traitors idly? Chapter 2, verse 1, which is one of the last things we get to hear Habakkuk say I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. So like us, Habakkuk interprets life through his eyes. What is it then that Habakkuk sees? As he looks out, and he looks at the world around him, he sees destruction, he sees violence, he sees strife, he sees contention, we read in verse 3, right? He doesn't get more specific, but one of his... Uh, contemporaries, the prophet Jeremiah, adds that list stealing. He adds exploiting those over whom you have power, people who are in weaker positions. And perhaps the worst part of all these things that Bacchus sees is that all this is done under the guise of religiosity. People who do these things are still going to temple on important days. They're still circumcising their kids. They're still calling themselves Jewish. And Habakkuk thinks, man, this is so wrong for this wicked people to prosper. So why do you let it go on, Lord? Their injustice goes unchecked, and instead they actually seem to get stronger, the wicked do, right? He says, for the wicked surround the right righteous in verse 4. Verse 16, such a person lives in luxury, his food is rich. So Habakkuk sees with his eyes that theirs is the strength, theirs is the good life, theirs is the good future. And he's, he's frustrated about this up in arms about it. Now allow me to apply this immediately head on to our situation. Cayman is a place ripe for excessive behavior like the kind we just read. Lots of money, lots of power, lots of feeling like one is above the law, whether that law be the government's or God's. 
Right? And so the financial service industry contains firms which act as safe havens for rule-bending and hush-hush infidelity, especially for those at the top. There are senior partners, I know this, who use terms like servant and slaves to describe their junior CPAs who work under them. And then they often exploit them as such to the point where they either get burnt out or they sell out. There are ministries in government who have holiday bashes, big holiday parties, that include a final game of exchanging keys from a bowl to determine who goes home with who that night. Politicians who offer bribes and constituent citizens who either condone it or even gladly welcome it. Then there are just people in general, some of them judgmental, some two-faced, some world-class jerks who, who still married well and they live well. All kinds of examples of people prospering as healthy, wealthy, successful, intact families and passing you by on their career paths. Even some who call themselves Christians and show up to church occasionally. And their life isn't lived to honor God, even remotely. So from the looks of things, it seems like God is not just tolerating wickedness, but favoring those who oppose him and his way of living. So let me just summarize what we see and conclude. Since the wicked prosper and justice is delayed, God must not favor me. He must not either be there or care, or he must just not favor me. And if that's true, why carry on this trying to love and please them with my life? Don't you ever feel stuck like that? Like, God, I'm just tired of this. I'm tired of what I see. I'm tired of, of trying to live for you if I'm the only one, it feels like, who's not going to receive blessing and a good life. And a back hook puts it similarly. Right? That how can I keep on saying that God is wor- good, that his law, that his word is true, when justice is nowhere to be found? The psalmist asks this question over and over and over. How long, O oh Lord, as he prays to God, how long, O oh Lord, to answer my prayer for justice to be delivered? But the big difference between all the psalmists we read and Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is actually answered by the Lord. God answers back. So we see one thing with our eyes, but we get to hear another thing from the Lord. And what we hear from God is basically two responses, the second of which is far better news than the first. And the first is pretty good news. The second is even better. But let's talk about God's first response that he gives here. The first response sort of in a nutshell would be this, I will use evil for your good. Look with me in verses 5 and 6 here. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you about it. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So the Chaldeans are another name for the Babylonians. At the end, we're here at the, at the end of the 7th century B.C., about 620, 610 B.C., somewhere around there. We don't know too much about Habakkuk. The Babylonians are starting to assert control over the ancient Near East, the place where the Jewish people live. The Babylonians are asserting control over the, over the long-established Assyrian military. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, what do we remember about the Assyrians? The Assyrians were the first true military nation, the, the first nation to love war for war's sake. They just enjoyed hurting people, getting into battles, and, and, and cutting people down. 
And if that's true of the Assyrians, Babylon was a nation that loved law-breaking for law-breaking's sake. As God says here in verse 7, these people, the Babylonians, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, whatever they wanted, whatever their heart's desire was, whatever they lusted after, that became their law. That became their standard of justice. You might see some parallels to the world we live in today, and even here in Cayman. Babylon is the Las Vegas of the ancient kingdoms. I want to put it simply. The Bab- or, or if you're European, Amsterdam. And God says that he is the one raising up this nation of drinkers, of murderers, of liars, of, of the licentious, the quick-tempered, the unmerciful kind of people to punish all those prospering people in Judah who think they can get away with anything and that God won't see. So God is going to deal justice towards one evil by propping up and using a greater evil. And Habakkuk, thinking that, wait, wait a minute, a greater evil is going to prosper? He's like, what? Lord, uh, can I just counsel you on this? Can we just have a minute and discuss? And right, so, so he sort of argues back a little bit. Verse, verse 13, you, wait a minute, God, you are who are of pure eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly then at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And down to verse 17. Is such a person then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I've been thinking of all week just a way to convey the outrage that Habakkuk must have felt. So I want to encourage you now, if you have a pen and you have your bulletin out, I want you to think about and maybe write down a nation or political figure Today, a nation or political figure that you really despise or disrespect. A nation or political figure you really despise or disrespect. But then I, it's really hard, I know. Now, imagine, if you would, that somehow, some way, God for sure communicates to you that he or she, or them, I'm guessing you wrote down a he or she, he or she is God's chosen instrument for the greatest good for your people. What's your reaction to that? Honestly, it takes a very big view of God to really believe that some of the evil we see is for our greatest good somehow. Joseph, one of the characters in the Old Testament, Joseph could say this to his brothers who tried to kill them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. But Joseph could say that now because he was the vice pharaoh of all of Egypt faithful to God, and wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. But for Habakkuk and those of his generation trying to seek God, they would be enslaved and die in a foreign land, the end. So hearing from God, I'm going to use this for your good, but then being enslaved and dying in a foreign land, the end, that's a tough one to swallow, right? Thankfully, God gives a second and even better response to Habakkuk's complaint. God, why did the evil prosper? Why is this happening? Why does this continue to go on? And God's second response is this. I will make you forever right with me as you wait for justice. I will make you forever right with me as you wait for justice. Look at verses 2 through 4. This is so important that we read this again. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. So he's waiting for justice here. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. 
it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And that final line is one of the most important lines in the entire Bible, not just for Habakkuk or for you and me, but for the course of history. And I'm serious about that. The course of history. I'd like to illustrate this with, with stories of two different men who had basically the exact same name, but they lived 450 years apart. Imagine, if you would, a monk in his mid-30s. This monk was constantly agitated. He's the kind of guy that you'd look at him, and when he talked to you, he'd be biting his nails. If he's sitting with you, he's always shaking his leg, right? His eyes are kind of red and puffy, and you're just kind of worried this guy looks like a nervous wreck. Because he is, he's ever discomforted, ever agitated by the talk of God, the talk of God's righteousness, and how he himself can never live up to that righteousness. And so he's always thinking about this. I can't live up to what God wants. I can't live up to what God wants. There were stories of Martin Luther going to confession. He would go to Catholic confession, confess his sins to a priest, and there are stories of him that he, he wouldn't even walk 100 meters before he would turn around and go back to confession because on the way out of confession, he'd have an impure thought. And so in the impure thought, he felt guilty. I'm not right with God again. I've got to go back to confession and confess it again. This was his life. You can imagine why he was a nervous wreck. So a well-meaning senior of his turned to him, turned, or turned him to, I should say, translating and teaching at a university because he figured, if I could just get this guy working with the Bible a little bit, it'll give him peace, it'll bring him back to the ways of the Catholic Church, it'll be fine. And so that's what he set Martin Luther on. So he's translating. And he, he's teaching, he's preparing lectures. And this, he's, he's upstairs one day in this tiny room in the tower of his cloister, his monastery. And he's working through Paul's letter to Romans. And he keeps hitting the same roadblock that he just can't emotionally get past. And that roadblock is this one verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which reads this, and it'll be up on your screen. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. So in the good news about Jesus, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, and this should sound familiar, the righteous will live by faith. And all of a sudden, as he's reading this and reading this, it hits him. The good news, or the gospel, is that righteousness is not at all earned. It is rather revealed by God and given to men as a gift. God reveals it. He gives it to men as a gift when they put their faith in Jesus. A person can know that he or she is forever right with God when that person puts their faith in Jesus Christ. You can know that. And he realizes that I I can be forever right with God if I just put my faith in Jesus. And upon having this epiphany, Luther actually says this, quote, I felt myself reborn and to have gone gone through the open doors into paradise. His, His life is transformed by this truth. And so has been all of human history. We are living under that truth, under this realization that Luther had. This verse also goes on to transform Luther and us in another way. You see, people at this time, without getting too complicated about theology and stuff, people wanted to know if God was happy with them at this time. This is like 16th century AD. Up to that point, every theologian, every priest, every bishop would say the only way to be sure that God's happy with you 
is to look around you at your circumstances. And if things are going really well for you, then God's happy with you. Clearly, right? But if things are going very poorly, both on the inside and the outside, especially the outside, then you know God's probably not happy with you. And you need to come to church. You need to do more stuff. You need to go to penance. You need to go to confession. Which, of course, was very convenient for the Catholic Church at the time because it was the wealthiest, most powerful institution in the world. So they had all the wealth. They had all the so-called blessing. So they said, hey, things are going great with us. They had the moral high ground to say, here's what you need to do to get right with God. To be assured that you're right with God, you've got to get healthy, wealthy, have success, or at least do all the things we're telling you to do. But then, of course, Luther reads Romans 117, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, and that changed all of that. You can be right with God through Jesus Christ and right with him forever. So for Luther and all those who followed his teaching, this, this breathed life and joy into them. I don't have to think that blessing or, or my life's going poorly determines where I am with God or how happy he is with me or how he favors me. But rather, by putting my faith in Jesus, I can know that I'm right with him forever. And it's wonderful. And this year marks the 500th anniversary of Luther's Reformation that began with Romans 117, the righteous shall live by faith. 500 years, and my community groups heard this like third, three, three times because I'm like a theological nerd. I'm like, hey, the anniversary of the Re- Reformation. Who's excited? We haven't had a cake yet. <laughs> so I've been reading this, this dense book here on Martin Luther and his doctrine. And I, and I started in January, you know, 500th anniversary and all. And I love Martin Luther. He's one of my heroes. Well, anyway, Gage, our youngest son, saw it downstairs on the kitchen table. And he remarked, oh, I want you to see this. It's important you see can you see that, basically? He's like, oh, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. looks like. And I said, well, buddy, um, there's some key differences. And we just celebrated, the reason he was thinking about it, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day as, as Americans and American citizens. And he and I had this talk about this civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., who, who loved God and tried to emulate the teachings of Jesus in his peaceful protest against injustice. And justice based on the color of one's skin. During those peaceful protests, Martin Luther King Jr. receives a number of death threats. But one in particular was so vicious and unkind and specific about his life that he just couldn't shake this death threat. He couldn't shake it. He began to think about his life, his legacy, the progress of the civil rights movement in the United States, which could end like that maybe if he stops leading it. He freaked out. And he was desperately looking for some sort of solace. And so he looked at it where he normally looked for solace, which was in this thing called Protestant, this, this movement called Protestant liberalism, which basically was, this, was the idea that mankind together can change history. Mankind together, we can change history. And Jesus is relevant really only for his ethical teachings, only for the good things he says to us. But what's interesting is that Luther couldn't find security there. He couldn't find security that, that we could just make this world a better place. Because he thought to himself, who knows if justice will even come in my lifetime? I don't know. I can't, I can't just guarantee it. I don't know if God will bring it. So at that time, he has what became known as the kitchen vision. Martin Luther King heard a voice saying, trust again in the God that your father preached about. The same father who renamed Michael into Martin Luther 
after his father was inspired by Martin Luther's Reformation. He had visited Europe, visited Germany. He read, the righteous shall live by faith, and he changed both he and his son's name to Martin Luther. So he finds peace and joy, not in mankind's progress for justice, but in the God who makes him just. Knowing that he's forever right with God fills him with security and joy as he works for justice until the day he's assassinated, until the day he dies. It's exactly what God says that this truth will do, that the righteous shall live by faith. It's exactly what God says that the truth will do. Look at verse 2. God says, Habakkuk, write this down, so that he may run who reads it. So he may run who reads it. Right? Think about when the last time you ran was. I mean, ran, not jogged. I've seen a lot of you jog. Maybe some of you guys have friends who are jogging this morning. Or jogging. I don't know how it's pronounced, really. When's the last time you ran? And not just after your, your toddler. I mean ran. My guess is it was for joy. Right? You sprinted for something you loved. I just pulled a hamstring doing that. But that's probably the last time you sprinted. And that's what is supposed to happen when we recognize we can be right with God forever. So this is our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Only those who believe they are right with God can rejoice while they wait for justice. Only those who believe they are right with God through Jesus Christ can rejoice while they wait for justice to come their way into the world around them. This occurred in the life of Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther before him, and Habakkuk before him. Listen to how his tale ends. Look about a page over and read with me the ending of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And I want you to listen to what being made right with God does to even a life that kind of stinks. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, And the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and though there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And there's a little note there at the end. You see one thing with your eyes. You hear another thing from God. What you believe above all will determine your capacity for joy. Look at verse 17 again. The fig tree won't blossom. Though the fig tree won't blossom. Though there will be no fruit on the vines, no produce, no, no fields, no flock, no herds. These aren't just random blessings that Habakkuk is missing out on. They are specific curses spelled out by God in his covenant with his people. There are curses for not being right with him, for not living right with him, for not being right with him. Let me read a few of these from Deuteronomy 28. You can find pretty much all of them there. This is what will happen if you're not right with God. A people that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground. There it is, the fruit. All of your labors. Deuteronomy 28.40. You shall have olive trees throughout your land, but you're not going to be able to anoint yourself with it. The olives shall drop off. Deuteronomy 28, 38, you shall carry much seed in the field, but you're going to gather little. 28, verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes. You shall not eat any of it, nor shall it work for you. If faith 
was conditional and full of ifs. If his faith, Habakkuk's, was subject to interpreting the signs of God's favor and blessing to know he was right with God, then he would have despaired and lost hope, right? He would have thought to himself, well, I don't have oxen. I don't have fruit. Everything's arid. There's no blessing around me. And things are going to get worse because Babylon is coming. God, you must not care. But thankfully, he gets an even surer promise that his faith makes him right with God forever. His life is transformed back to this because belief in God's promise takes him from an if faith to a though faith. Not a conditional faith. If that, then I'll love you, God. Then I'll serve you. But a though faith. Though these things happen to me, though I endure hardship, though my life is not as good as those who live unjust lives, yet I will love and serve you because you're with me forever. And that is the joy that Habakkuk has. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So he doesn't get health, wealth, success, family or friends. He's always one. He gets God forever. Just by believing God more than he believes what he sees with his eyes. He gets to enjoy God as he walks through a stinky life. As he walks through the hell that's coming in the face of Babylon. I want to be careful here not to add more than what's required to enjoy God's favor and his fellowship forever, which is belief, belief, faith, trust in Jesus Christ. I want to be careful not to add to that. So so don't mishear me in what I'm about to say. For those of us, though, who have trusted, already believed in Jesus, we can strengthen that belief. We can support and nourish that belief so that you can be like this deer who, who trots nimbly through the rocky mountains of life. Habakkuk gives us two clues on how we can strengthen our faith, our belief that God loves us and we're right with him and we'll be with him forever. The next time Habakkuk speaks after hearing that the righteous shall live by faith is a prayer at the beginning of chapter 3. We don't have time to go through it, but it's a prayer of remembrance and thanksgiving of God's salvation at the Exodus, crossing the Red Sea. The, The Exodus in the Old Testament was like the salvation moment for God's people. They always reflected back to it. They always remembered they were God's people because of it. So one of the ways we strengthen our belief, our joy-giving belief, is to recall God's saving work in our lives. To recall his great work on your behalf, on behalf of those you love, on behalf of even your church. Write down what he does. To reflect on what he does. To testify to what he has done in your life. And that strengthens our belief. The other clue Habakkuk gives us would be very easy to miss. It's at the very end of his prophecy. His belief that he is right with God forever causes him to rejoice. But then there's this little notation at the end. Look at that in verse 19. To the choir master with stringed instruments. What does that tell you? That should tell you that Habakkuk has been singing the last few verses of his prophecy. He's singing it. Can you imagine that? Singing, guys, strengthens our belief. It strengthens our faith. In fact, after Martin Luther discovers that the righteous shall live by faith, one of the things he does is he implements in the new church, new churches he starts, community singing. And that sounds so normal to us. We're going to do it in a minute. We did it to start our service. And we just take that so for granted. But that hadn't been done in like a thousand years before Martin Luther implemented it. He composed 30 hymns himself. 
He asked that all the schools teach kids how to sing. Why did he believe singing was so important? It didn't just come from Habakkuk. He says, singing has nothing to do with the law. Singers have cause to be married. They're free from their sorrows and cares. Singing reminds us that we are free. Free from the curse of trying to earn God's favor or interpreting the signs of it. We're free from that. Completely. And that is why we sing. Now, I'm a typical man. I'm prone to to stay in my head and lead with my head without my heart. So I need my iTunes worship playlist. And I need to sing from it every day. I want to encourage you guys, especially you men, to develop one and sing that too. Now, I'm going to share something here to close this morning. Something that my wife gave me not only permission, but she encouraged me to share. I met Katie as a teenager. And back then, I knew she had back pain that always nagged at her. But the inflammation wasn't uh, debilitating. It didn't lead to chronic bouts of anxiety and depression. Uh, she didn't, it didn't lead to Sunday mornings or entire days where she couldn't get out of bed, and that, which has happened for us over the past couple years. And there are a few people I know who go through this as well. And some of you have gone through things like this as well. But I know a few people like Katie. She has this burning desire to share with others the hope she has in Jesus Christ. She loves to share the gospel among the teachers and the students that she works with. She demonstrates the gospel by reaching out to the marginalized and for people usually forgotten about. And when I um, think of that, it, I can't help but protest sometimes, God, why do others who don't seek you or bring honor to your name receive health and happiness while she does not? And... Uh, you know, we regularly examine sin in our own lives to make sure it's not something we're doing. We, we pray we by faith, and please pray with us. That's one way you can help us, not necessarily by coming up to her later, asking her how you can help, or just giving her advice. We pray, and yet most nights she dreads going to bed because there's a good chance that she's going to wake up swollen in pain or either, and usually either anxious or, or sad. We do family worship at night. She has to stand up and pace because it's hard for her to stay still. When we read a verse, when we read the Psalms in the morning, we can only read maybe a verse and pray for 30 seconds because her mind is filled with so many other things. And yet, yet she and I, we can still smile together. We can still laugh together. and We can move forward together. She can move past and put behind some of her worst moments and serve others because she knows that her worst moments don't define who she is or where she stands with God. She may have to fight sadness and endure anxiety, and others don't have to. But she doesn't fear death because she has a secure future with Jesus. What Jesus she has, as Apostle Peter puts it, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for her. Her faith at times is frail like all of ours, but she knows that her rightness doesn't depend on the strength of her faith, but on the strength of her Savior. He is able to sustain still burning embers of joy as she waits for justice in her life. Pray with me if you would. God, we recognize uh, in this life that we won't see justice the way we will see it one day. You promised us that you will one day put everything to right. But we confess it is hard to live in a world where we see people, God, who have no regard for you and and are blunt about it or say they have regard to you with their lips in a religious way, but live in ways that hurt others. 
and serve self only. And God, to some extent, that, that is all of us. And we're grateful that you forgive us. Yet we know still that there are many who have that way, who, who have, quote unquote, the good life. And that's hard to watch sometimes, God. But we are thankful that that, that kind of material blessing, that kind of obvious good life doesn't mean that you're with us more or less. We're thankful for this great promise that we can be right with you because of our faith in Jesus. Not just right with you now, but right with you forever. Which can keep that joy burning down deep in our hearts even as we go through adversity and we wait for justice in the world around us. We thank you for that. And I ask for any of those here who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, that they might know they have a Savior who wants to be with them forever, even through the adversity, and that one day he will make all their wrongs right again. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.